Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that there hasn't ever been a day when you let us fall. You're always there for us. You're always with us. You love us. You're gracious to us. And we are so grateful for you. Lord, be faithful to us now in this time as we open your word, as we begin a new year and we begin a new series. Lord, I pray that you'd speak life and wisdom and truth and wholeness into our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, I think it's a Happy New Year. Uh, 2021. And, uh, and let me begin by saying that uh, I have always been a person who leverages the beginning of a new year to take inventory of my life. Uh, uh, I always take time at the beginning of every year to just sort of assess and evaluate my development or my growth as a follower of Jesus. Uh, I do it as a husband, as a father, uh, as a steward of God's gift. I always just sort of stop and I look back at the previous year and then I look at the year ahead and I take time to just think about what God might have in the days ahead. And every year I am the guy, I will admit this, that I'm the guy who sets all kinds of new goals and I hit the proverbial reset button on my life and I just consider every new year a fresh start. And let me just say, I look forward to beginning a new year this year. Uh, in fact, I don't think I've ever looked forward to a new year like I look forward to this new year. Um, you're probably with me in this whole thing. Uh, I, for one, am grateful that 2020 is in the rearview mirror at this point, even if that rearview mirror is held together with bailing wire and duct tape, which is sort of how it feels right now. Um, but I am so excited about the year to come. Um, now, I just want to tell you this, that the way that I think about the new year and fresh starts and new goals certainly influences the way that I think about um, the things that I preach at the beginning of every, every year. So every year, I want to launch us in a direction that's a reflection of a new beginning, sort of starting fresh, maybe creating new rhythms, new habits for our lives, which really leads me to this series that we're beginning today that Steve alluded to and the why behind it. Um, if there's one consistent thread that we can see running through all of our lives in 2020, it is this thread of disruption. Nearly every category of our life uh, has been disrupted on some level or another through the course of this year. Uh, in fact, um, certain phrases, I've noticed this, they became a part of our vocabulary that quite honestly have become downright annoying for many of us. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, we've all heard plenty of the word unprecedented. I think after a month or so of things actually being precedented, it's no longer unprecedented. So I don't, I don't want to hear that word anymore. Everything is unprecedented, which means it's now precedented. Or how about this one? I've heard a lot of people, in fact, I think I've even used it. Uh, we've said the phrase abundance of caution. Now, when I say that, that sounds and feels really redundant. Like, we're not just cautious, we are more than cautious. Like, if there was a com competition for cautiousness, we would want to win the cautiousness competition. Um, not to mention this, um, abundance, for me, is always a word that's associated with something good, but not in 2020. Like, when I think about abundance, I usually think of things like blessings, an abundance of blessings, or an abundance of chocolate, or an abundance of money. I have never thought about having an abundance of caution but here we are saying words like this, or this one, pivot. I've heard business leaders and church leaders use this all over the place, that we're going to pivot. And I used this one early on, but pretty soon I realized we were pivoting so fast that we were actually spinning and getting dizzy from all of our pivoting. Um, or how about this other one, social distancing. 
I don't know that there are two words I am more tired of hearing than those two words. And the irony is they are completely opposite of one another. Can we put two more opposite words together? Social and distance. Like it's the strangest phrase. But then the final one I want to share with you, and this one really speaks to where we're going today, is this. We keep talking about the new normal. Listen. The only way that you can call something normal is if it actually feels normal. Normal is a feeling. So until something feels normal, you can't tell me that it is normal by slapping the word new on it. That doesn't work that way. If it feels new, it is not normal. So quit using the phrase new normal for us. Now, I I reference all of these because all of this stuff flows out of a vocabulary. And what they have in common is this vocabulary of disruption. Our lives, really what this reflects, have been systematically, categorically, in every way, disrupted. Especially our rhythms. Uh, most of us, I think, when we think about our life, we had, uh, we had pretty good rhythms. We had pretty good patterns for our daily lives. We knew the times and the places and the practices. There was this symmetry to our lives. We, we had a regularity, a predictability to certain things in our lives. I'm not going to say whether or not that predictability or whether or not those rhythms were healthy or unhealthy. That's not what I'm commenting on now. I'm just simply saying we had a way of doing things. There was an expectation for how our days would flow and all of that that has been disrupted. There was a way of seeing our lives. There was a way of finding purpose. And that has been wrecked in unprecedented ways. Um, Now, there are a few ways that we can respond to this disruption. We can get cranky. I've done this. You've done this. We've had our moments of getting cranky, right? We can grumble and we can express our frustrations in all sorts of ways. We can extend, we can extend our frustration towards other people. We can displace our aggression. We can do all sorts of things in this. Or we can also assume a biblical posture. And a biblical posture would be one that echoes James 1. James, the brother of Jesus, writes to the church in Jerusalem and says that we are to consider it pure joy when we encounter trials of many kinds because, as James says, those trials will strengthen, they'll build, they will fortify our faith. We will grow in those times. So based on that, even though I've had my grumpy moments, I've been trying to be as biblical as I can as it relates to disruption through this past year. And I'll just tell you that time and time again, I have asked the Lord to teach me during this season. I've said, Lord, would you show me something that I haven't seen before? Would you teach me something I haven't learned before? Would you grow me? Would you challenge me? Would you transform me during this season? Like, let's use this trial. Let's not waste this moment and have us get on the other side and not be any different. And one of the greatest things that I've come to realize is that this disruption has actually created some space. It's sort of made cracks in the veneer of our lives that have allowed God to break through in some new places, in some new areas in my life. I've realized that about this season for me. In fact, in some cases, I'm exploring new practices and new rhythms, and I'm, I'm analyzing my life, even in this current season, and, and seeing the way that I've carried myself for the past decade or two and thought through some things differently. And so I'm, I'm analyzing because of this, and God is creeping into the cracks that's, that have been exposed during this season. Uh, in other cases, I'm restoring old rhythms and old habits that maybe had fallen by the wayside because of the busyness of life, which really brings us to this series. One of the things that I've recognized over the past year is that we have lost much of our connection to sacred rhythms 
and meaningful liturgy. In fact, I'll just say I've probably been noticing this for longer than just the past year, probably for the last several years. I've been noticing that in the church in the West, we've sort of lost the the way that we conduct services, the way that we move through our experiences together. We've sort of lost this connection that we have to things that are sacred, to rhythms, to meaningful liturgy. But, But more than just how we conduct things together and services together, what I've sensed is that we've lost this in terms of relation to our daily lives, how we move through our lives. And I understand why from, from a couple of perspectives, and I'll explain this one. For many of us, part of our spiritual journey is that we've been liberated from legalistic or moralistic religiosity. Uh, We've been liberated from the same kind of religiosity that Jesus himself confronted during his earthly ministry. And when we were liberated from those things, certain things, certain practices, or even the idea that we would have regular, repeated practices have been discarded as religiosity as we embrace this new faith that we found in Jesus. And so incidentally, as a part of our journey, we have lost certain elements that were potentially beautiful and meaningful in our current walk with the Lord. So discarding some of these practices results in, for a lot of us, the absence of important sacred rhythms. We've lost the sense of of liturgy in our daily lives. And this is important because what shapes us can essentially be traced back to our desires. Who we are right now, who you are in this moment, the, the desires you have are shaping those things about you. What shapes you is what you desire. Because what you desire is what makes you act in any given direction. So so you have choices in front of you, and your deepest desires are going to drive the decisions that you make. It's desire that drives our choices. But what we often fail to realize is that our desires are malleable. Our our desires are are pliable. They're flexible. And, And our society doesn't tell us that. In fact, our society wants us to believe that our desires are hardwired into our DNA, that uh, your desires are who you are. It it reduces us to impulsive beings. Our our society wants us to think that we have little control over our cravings. But interestingly enough, if you walked in the halls of successful ad agencies or marketing firms, you would discover just the opposite. (laughs) Marketing, advertising, is built on the fundamental principle that your desires or my desires can be shaped, that they can be changed, and in fact, they've discovered that that is the case. It's completely accurate to think that way. Your desires and my desires are completely malleable and flexible. And and the greatest way that we shape desire is through our habits. The way our desires get shaped is through habitual, repetitive things that we engage in through discipline or a lack thereof. Let me give you a simple example of this. Uh, when, I was, when I was young, in my high school and college years, I was a competitive athlete. And um, my sophomore year in high school, my club coach brought in a nutritionist to talk to my team. And, and, he, and he, this nutritionist was highlighting all of these different things that we should be eating or should not be eating. But there was one item that he identified that sort of struck at my core. And he said that French fries were particularly bad for us. And he went into all the details and showed us the great pictures that made us all grossed out about how bad French fries were, especially in the 90s. And so in that time, I actually made the decision right there my sophomore year at high school, I thought, I'm never going to eat another French fry as long as I'm competing. And I didn't. For the next several years, I never touched a single French fry, but it wasn't because of the decision that I made. 
In fact, um, there were several times in the next few weeks when I had an opportunity to order French fries and my mouth would water and the impulse was there because I always ordered fries with every opportunity. But then I found myself ordering the salad. And the more I ordered the salad, the more I made the healthy choice, the easier it became. And pretty soon when I sat down in a restaurant, my desire had been shaped by my new habit. I didn't want fries anymore. Now I wanted the salad. And I began to desire something different. That is how habits, and specifically, that's how spiritual rhythms work in our lives. We don't do these things religiously to prove something, like we're white-knuckling it. They're done out of a desire to shape desire. I engage in certain habits. I I participate in certain regular things in order to shape what I desire because those desires will shape who I am. So, So what begins as a discipline develops into a habit which in turn begins to shape our desires. Now, what's fascinating about early Hebrew spirituality is that the Lord integrated all sorts of beautiful rhythms and habits into the daily lives of his people. And one of them is this prayer found in Deuteronomy called the Shema. Now, this Shema, this prayer, uh, is literally something that, that the Hebrew people had been praying for thousands of years. They would pray this as a way of expressing their devotion to God. Every morning and every evening and, and other times you'll see as well, they prayed this Shema prayer. It was a habit. It was a ritual. It was a regular thing they did to express devotion to God. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and, and when you read it or when you hear it, My guess is that you're going to find certain things familiar in this, like you've maybe heard this before. So if you have a Bible, you can look with me, or you can follow along on the screen. It says this. In verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Every morning, every night. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. So maybe you ask yourself, well, why this prayer? Why these verses? Well, the following verses explain why this became so important. Reading on in verse 6, it says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So the Lord says, I want these words to be on your hearts. That's another way of saying, I want these words to be your heart's desire. I want you to desire these things. I want this to be in you. And so he says, teach your children and talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you go to bed and when you rise up, tie them on your hands and on your forehead, even put them on the doorpost of your house. You realize that all of that language is the language of habit. It's the language of repetition, of reminding, of saying, no, this is the habit that I have and that habit will shape my desires. So apparently the Lord felt that it was important, important enough that habits and rhythms would be built around this Shema prayer. Important enough that that later on uh, in Jewish history, when Jesus was being questioned by some folks who were testing his legitimacy, they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And he quotes the Shema. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, it says, they asked him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So the greatest commandment, when Jesus is asked, it starts with the Shema. I think that makes it pretty important. So for the next several weeks, as we begin this new year, we're going to take a deep dive into this Shema prayer. It's incredibly rich, even though it's only a few verses. There are incredible depths for us to explore in this. And we're going to unpack the meaning. We're going to unpack the implications. And then we're going to talk about the habits that we form around this. So, so tonight, or today, I want to, I want to look at, at where this prayer gets its name from and what it's actually asking us to do. So Shema, where does this word Shema come from? Well, it's actually the first word of the prayer. What's been translated in our English version as hear or as listen is the Hebrew word Shema. Now, the word Shema appears throughout the entire Old Testament. It's everywhere in the Old Testament as you, as you turn its pages because hearing is very much a part of the human experience. It's one of our significant senses. But the Hebrew understanding of this word is a bit more complicated. There's a few more dimensions to it than our understanding of hearing when we say the word hear. And to illustrate this, I'm just going to give you an example of, of these two dogs that live in my house. I have two dogs these days. Um, one of them is my couple-of-year-old Labrador retriever. Um, she goes a lot of places with me. Her name is Koa. She is full of energy. Uh, she loves friends. She enjoys running with me in the mornings. Like she, is, she is like fully alive all the time. Like Koa is a ball of energy. Our other dog uh, is more of a gremlin, Ewok, Dr. Seuss character um, mix or blend who's been with us 16 years this Christmas. She's not energetic. She actually doesn't like friends. She wants to be left alone. And the only place she runs to these days is her food bowl and then back to her bed. That's about it for, for us. Now, the other problem is that she's also um, got a Shema problem of sorts along with my other dog, but, but not in the Hebrew sense of the word. Koa, the lab, she gets so excited that no matter how loud I yell at her, if I'm out on a run with her, no matter how I yank on her collar, she can't help herself. She just bounds towards the other dogs that might be out on a trail. Um, Lilo, on the other hand, has lost her hearing. Um, these days, I have to clap my hands really loud, and I have to get her to look at me, and then I make sign language, and I yell at her really loud. In fact, I think my neighbors think I'm angry at my dog a lot, but the reality is I just want her to hear me. So these are my two dogs. They both have some hearing issues, but my lab is the one that has the real Shema problem. Let me, let me explain this. Shema is more than just receiving sound waves into our ears. Shema means to pay attention to or to focus on. My 16-year-old dog, when she sees the instruction, she pays attention. She just can't hear real well. It's my lab that doesn't really listen. Shema implies a heartfelt response to what a person hears. That's what the word Shema means. So when the writer in Deuteronomy says, Shema, O Israel, he's pleading with the people to pay attention to what God is saying and to respond out of that place. Like when my girls were little, we used to always say, listen and obey. We connected those two words. But here's what's really interesting. In ancient Hebrew, there is no word for obey. There's just the word listen. So a Hebrew mom or dad wouldn't say listen and obey. They would just simply look at their child and say, Shema. 
You need to shema. You need to listen to me and then do what I'm telling you to do because listening and doing in the Hebrew construct, the Hebrew understanding, they are one in the same. So this gives us a clue to something that Jesus says in his ministry at one point. Mark chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus is preaching and he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. If anyone has ears, what he's saying is, let them shema. Let them listen with the, the intention of acting on whatever they've heard. So listening in the Bible is always about giving respect to the one speaking and doing what they're saying. Shema, O Israel. When I consider what might be different from 2021 and 2020, one of my hopes would be our posture as it relates to this word. Rather than continually pleading with God to shema us, to hear us, which we do quite regularly, I'm hoping that we would shema him, as the writer of Deuteronomy suggests. In fact, even as I wrote this message, I couldn't help but think of how much our prayer, how much our devotional life, how much of my own personal journaling is spent talking to God rather than listening for God. So what if 2021 was the year where we were trying to listen and obey God rather than getting God to listen to us and obey us. I'll, I'll tell you what influences my capacity to make that shift. It's the way the author continues in these verses. He says, Shema, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. But then he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the writer pauses here on purpose to remind us of who it is that we're listening to. Which, by the way, emotionally intelligent people are usually impacted by an understanding of who they're listening to. They know how to respond in these moments. For instance, uh, I have a friend, his name is Sung Chan Rob, and, uh, and he is an expert on issues of racism uh, in America, but particularly uh, the Christian perspective on racism. And, and when Sung Chan starts talking, I have learned to just sort of shut up. In fact, last year, we climbed Mount Kilimanjaro together, and, and one of the highlights was at the end of our summit day, we had to go down to a, a lower camp to get to a lower elevation, and so we were spread out on a trail, and, and our whole group of people was just lingering, kind of slinkied out, moving towards this lower camp, and I happened to just be connected with Soon Chan, and so we had several hours of just the two of us talking, and I just listened to him talk. In fact, I made the decision, I am not going to say anything or express my ignorance unless he asks me, and then I'll reveal how ignorant I might possibly be. Well, when the writer says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, he's drawing our attention to the very essence of who God is. This is the God of the universe. This is the ground of our being. This is the one who holds life together. He is, as Paul quoted in Acts, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. So, so the reaction of this prayer night and day is a continual reminder of God is God and I am not. Hero Israel, God is God and you are not. And so lean in and listen because this is God. It's interesting that the Jews who recited the Shema were said to put on the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. This meant that there was explicit knowledge, explicit acknowledgement that there was a king, Yahweh, and that there was a kingdom, which was his rule. 
So, so the order of the Shema, the way this prayer rolls out, meant that a person praying it accepted the yoke of the kingdom, accepted the sovereignty of God before attempting anything else in life. There is this reverence that pours out of that reminder. And, and again, when I think about the year to come and how I might navigate all of the uncertainty, uh, I'm holding deep in my heart that God is God and I am not. And that sort of reverence, if we read the prayer, results in love. To the love of God, which is what the next several weeks we're going to dive deeply into. Um, Notice the second command. First, the writer says, listen to God. But then now he tells us to love God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. What's he saying? What he's saying is that we're called to love God before all others, before all else. The Hebrew word for love here is the word ahava, and it's the word that the Hebrews would use in the most general sense, the most all-encompassing sense of love. This is concerning love. This is caring love. This is attention-giving love. This is, this is a, a love that expands itself for another person. Ahava is the kind of love that a parent has for a child. Ahava protects. It attends to the needs of. Ahava is about affection. Ahava are all of those things that, that we think about when we think about loving somebody and kindness and patience and, and, and our willingness to serve them. That's ahava. And in the next few weeks, we're going to dive deeper into what that means. But I just want to close with this. What God is inviting us into in the Shema prayer is a reciprocal relationship of love. He wants us to love him the way that he loves us with this ahava love. And maybe you say, well, how? How do I do that? How do I love God the way that he loves me? I think the answer for us today is really easy. We just have to look at how he first loved us. All I have to do is look at the cross, and immediately I understand and I am reminded of the great love that God has for me and the great love that God has for you. And when I see that love, when I see his love expressed, there is something inside of my heart that simply says, I want to love you back. I want to listen to you, and I want to love you. So as we consider the year before us, 2021, let's consider what it might look like if we elevated our love of God above everything else. I know that's a tall order. I know our world gives us innumerable things to love in this day and age. But what if our greatest love, what if your greatest love in 2021 was God? I think that's what he wants from us. And that's my hope. And that's my prayer. So right now, I'm going to invite the band to close us in a song today. And as they're coming, I just want to take a moment right now, and I want to invite you to join me in praying. And after I pray, we'll sing together, and then I'll come back, and I'll offer us the benediction. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, thank you so much for the amazing love that you have extended to us. And as we look ahead at an incredible opportunity of a year. Our prayer is that we would find ourselves leaning in to listen to what you have for us.
Lord, I even pray that over the next several weeks, there would be some course correction in our heart's desire, that the posture of our lives towards you and towards the world around us would begin to shift, that the habits and the rhythms that we've formed in our lives would begin to orient around you and who you are. Lord, I pray that there would be new things that you speak to us, new things that you work in us. Lord, we want to listen to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Nothing else, nothing else.
as you begin this new year, may you be men and women who shema the Lord your God. And may you grow in your ahava, in your love for him as you understand his great love for you. And may you in every way be the kind of person who leans in to everything that God has for you in 2021. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys so much. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully we'll get to see a lot of you in person in the weeks to come. Until that time, we're praying for you. Feel free to check out anything on our website. Ask us any questions. There's so many great things going on. We'd love for you to get connected in brand new ways. We'll see you guys really soon.